Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and this is show number 20. Gosh, they go fast, don't they? So this week I have the wonderful Professor Mark Cohen with me. He is one of Australia's pioneers of integrative and holistic medicine and has made an unbelievable amount of significant impacts uh, on education, research, clinical practice, policy. He really is not someone who ever says, I have studied enough. I can't actually count the amount of degrees he's done, but I can tell you a few things. He's a registered medical practitioner, so he's a GP. He also has degrees in Western medicine, uh, psychology, physiology, uh, biomedical engineering. Uh, He's just an incredible wealth of knowledge, Uh, someone who is equally passionate as I am in the uh, toxin space and the everyday environmental toxin concerns that uh, we all have. But today, what we're focusing on is uh, a little bit about his journey, simply because he's a fascinating man. And I think it's really incredible that we have people like him in our corner, um, wanting to not just uh, see people one-on-one or teach, but also work with governments in policy. You will absolutely love the work he's trying to do on chlorine at the moment, which I will let him explain to you as we chat. Uh, Yeah, we cover quite a few things. So wellness, uh, some of the keys to health that he sees as being uh, really crucial and a whole bunch of tangents and interesting things along the way. Uh, as you know, I'm the tangent queen and, and this, this interview certainly doesn't uh, change my, uh, my status as that in terms of where the conversation takes us. Really, really cool. Now, before we jump into that, I just want to mention very excitedly for the next two episodes, we have the wonderful Valida uh, as our program partner. Uh, so you will have 20 percent off their whole range for the next two weeks. That is brilliant timing for Christmas. I can't tell you how much uh, the, their products suit Christmas, especially if you've maybe realised uh, that you don't want to be a DIYer, um, but you do want to give something low tox, but you don't want it to cost the earth. Uh, look no further than I guess what my number one recommendation would be, would be the skin food cream. And you can always go the smaller size. If you wanted to get a few of them for teachers' gifts or for um, a few cousins or aunties, friends that you're going to be celebrating with um, instead of bringing another box of chocolates, you know, just something gorgeous that's going to treat them in a different way than food does. I think we, we can tend to concentrate on food as the treat that we all deserve, but there are so many gorgeous treats and, and giving a, a low-tox gift is is definitely one of them. Um, so skin food would be one of my top picks. What else? The gorgeous uh, fragrances that they have, three beautiful fragrances without so much as a whiff of anything synthetic, no phthalates. Uh, for those of you who don't know, many, many, most, in fact, um, mainstream fragrances contain phthalates in them. And phthalate is a, a hormone disruptive chemical that basically acts as a binder, a plasticizer uh, in both the plastics world but also in the fragrance world to make fragrances stick. So you absolutely want to get these 
out of your life in every form that they take, uh, you may be also wanting to sign up to January's round of Go Low Talks to do that because we go through it in really big detail through all the topics around your day-to-day and home. But one of the major things you can do is work on that fragrance that you put on yourself every single day. And we'll either have some beautiful, three actually, beautiful fragrances. The rose one is surprisingly my favourite. I, I always associate rose as uh, being uh, something that I would have given to my grandmother were she still alive as a hand cream. You know, it's a little bit more of a yesteryear kind of scent. But uh, the rose is always married with a citrusy note in Walita's products. I love their smoothing rose day cream, for example. That's that's actually a product that's probably in my five that I would absolutely never be without. And their rose fragrance, again, just has a really uplifting, gorgeous, gorgeous smell. So you've got all the details, including the code and including the link to their website to make the most of that 20% off for the next two weeks. So if you've got any last minute gifts that you still haven't bought, uh, please feel free to make the most of that one. It's a gorgeous brand. They go above and beyond organics being biodynamic. Uh, They do incredible things for the earth, for the people that work for them, for the farms that they work with. They're really the real deal and win many, many awards for the work that they do both in the supply chain and with the products themselves. So enjoy that one. And speaking of enjoyment, I really, really hope that you enjoy my chat with Professor Cohen today. Again, one of my favourites. I know I say it every week, but this one, again, is another favourite. Hello, Mark. Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm very, very well. Great to be with you. So fantastic to have you on the show. And there are so many things we can talk about given the crazy breadth of uh, wisdom you have to offer. But I'm going to start by asking you what your fondest childhood memory is. Wow, it's a great question. And um, I don't know if I can narrow it down to one. I can think of about three. And funnily enough, they all have to do with water. So oh. splashing around in the backyard with the hose on a you know summer um, afternoon, being down the beach and collecting crabs and starfish when my local beach, I grew up in Bayside suburb of Melbourne and the local beach used to, you know, we used to have shark warnings <laughs> because there were so many fish, the sharks used to come in and there were heaps of crabs and shellfish and, and starfish around. And also the first time I saw snow, I must have been about six or seven years old and we, we were on a bus trip up to Marysville and Lake Mountain and, and seeing snow was just an amazing experience and, you know, playing around in that, and it sort of changed my life and snow has been part of my life since then. So, Oh, yeah. has it? Oh, interesting. What way? Oh, I just I've made it a point every year to to go to the snow. Ah, you know, okay. To, to see snow and you know, travel around the world and visit snow-covered mountains. Right. Oh, how beautiful. That's that childlike kind of wonder that you want to revisit consciously every year, I'm sure, for a very obvious reason in terms of how it makes you feel right yeah and I've just I've just realized that um I really associate myself with water like mm. it's is um I don't know my totem or you know my essence is water and um I'm making water a bigger part of my life so my my most recent foray which maybe we can talk a bit later on is um researching around hot springs and Ooh. natural water sources. I've just come back from a, a month in Europe visiting hot springs in five countries and taking water samples and experiencing the water and drinking the waters. And, and I'm now 
studying the waters from many different aspects, which is a yeah, fantastic area of research. That sounds like a, a rather indulgent area of research too. You know, you obviously have to enter the hot springs, right? Yeah, well, it's quite funny. While we're in <laughs> Europe, I'm collecting water samples where I'm filtering them for DNA. We're actually looking at the naturally occurring bacteria and fungi and archaea, all the different microbial life in, in the water, but also the microbial life that happens when you add people to the water. So I was travelling with the tour group at these some hot springs on getting everyone to take samples while we're actually in the pools. So people are oh my helping gosh. me collect samples while they're all probably contributing their own DNA as well. And when you run a research, uh, a piece of research like this, are you hoping for a particular outcome or is it pure curiosity and and you're open to whatever the the, the research shows you? Well, I mean, when it's... When it's research, you don't know what, what's going to happen. So there is yeah. unknown questions. However, the research we're doing, and sort of we're diving into a whole area here, but um, what we're focused on is really industry-based research, and we're trying to get chlorine out of the bathing industry. How fantastic is that? So we're focusing on the, you know, the microbial life in bathing water and how you can protect the public. You know, if you've got thousands of people you know, at a public you know, hot spring facility, how you can make mm. sure that people aren't going to infect each other and get sick, but also to make sure that they're not getting exposed to disinfectant. Yeah, exactly. It's a huge issue. You know, every, every parent wants their little kid to, to learn how to swim, especially in Australia where it's, mm. it's a critical skill. And uh, and I just find it crazy that I have to help parents then mitigate the effects of chlorine by take a little bit of this, put your coconut oil there, and you know and <laughs> you got to do all these things yeah. before a swimming well, lesson, well, is, you um, know, which should just be. There's new technologies that are coming available that hopefully within within five years they'll be available, but within ten years they'll be you know, legislated that can fully actually surpass chlorine in terms of its the sanitation and the monitoring of what we do because it's pretty crazy at the moment in aquatic centers and and even in you know natural hot springs they chlorinate the water and, and they test the chlorine levels every few hours but they actually only test for bugs you know maybe once a week or every quarter mm. and it's the bugs that you're trying to control it's the actually the pathogens you're trying to control because you can never make water totally sterile so um no and we shouldn't want to, well, should we? Well, that's right. I mean, the, the, we need to make friends with our bacteria. Um, both yeah, we're from nature and water is too, and we should all make friends. And, of course, there's, you know, sanitation's a big concern. Clean water is a huge concern. But, yeah, that is, wow, okay. So I'm working with the, these really high-tech scientists using nano-biosensors and nano-ozone micro-bubble technology and next-generation sequencing, looking at DNA sequences to actually measure, monitor and manage that what we call the bathing biome. And it's, you know, the bathing biomes like our microbiome in our gut, you know, there's a you know, water doesn't want to be sterile. There's a, a natural ecology of life that happens in water, whether you put disinfectant or not. And, and actually chlorine doesn't kill a lot of things. It won't kill viruses or spores from protozoa like Giardia or Cryptosporidium, which can cause infective outbreaks. So we're confident we can come up with a much better system that will ensure the safety of the public, um, not expose people to you know, disinfectants like chlorine um, and make it a lot safer. Amazing. So that's what Mark's up to now, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that's one of the, that's one of the projects. It's about <laughs> one of projects them. Like yeah, exactly. That. Hopefully a sort of world-changing. Um, that's yeah, it's what I'm very... Um, I feel very good about um, travelling the world and visiting hot springs.
Yeah, I, I would be feeling really good if that's what I'm. I got to try yeah. and figure out a way for me to need to be visiting hot springs. That's okay. That's next on my career bucket list. Now, how did you? Because you obviously trained to be a medical doctor, mm-hmm. uh, a GP at the very start. What inspired you to actually do that? What What was it about your mind growing up that you knew you wanted to to go into well, the medical field? I mean, I was always just curious. I didn't specifically want to go into medicine, but I just always loved learning. And I remember at the end of, you know, HSC, you know, my high school certificate, and I, I really loved the sciences. So I actually went to Melbourne High School and I managed to do physics, chemistry and biology, which were, you know, the three sciences. And there weren't that many schools that allowed you to do you know, all three sort of prac-based sciences. And I excelled in biology. And I remember, you know, I studying biology at the time when you know, Life on Earth series with David Attenborough came out yeah. and you know, just hanging on every word he said and just loved, loved that subject and actually won the biology prize at, at school. And when I was thinking about, you know, what do you, you know, have very good marks, you know, what do you do in terms of university? And I was thinking, you know, engineering, law and medicine were the three sort of things that smart people did. And I remember just thinking that I wanted to have the happiest and healthiest life myself. And I figured if I went into medicine... I would learn about that because mm. medicine should teach me about birth and death and everything in between. And, you know, I'd, I'd learn how to have a happy, healthy life. So that's, I actually went into medicine for a selfish reason, not to, you know, didn't want to help sick people necessarily. I wanted to learn how to be happy and healthy and really wanted to understand wellness for myself. So that was my motivation going into, you know, studying medicine. Right. And did it live up to that? Well, it didn't really. Um, at that time, medicine was a six-year degree. And it was three years undergraduate and then three years in hospitals. And after the first three years at the university, I thought I'd learned a lot about illness, but not much about wellness. Mm. So, you know, we studied pathology and all the anatomy and embryology and all, biochemistry and all of those things. And I really didn't feel I had a handle on, you know, how to be healthy and well. And I actually took a year off and did an honours degree with a Bachelor of Medical Science. And I studied, um, they wouldn't let me study pleasure at that time, so I had to study pain. And um, Interesting. So, so talk me through it. You, who did you ask, can I please study pleasure? Like how? Well, well to get to do an honours degree, you had to have a supervisor. Okay. And this was in 1985, so mm-hmm. you know, it's a, a while back, um, before positive psychology was you know, even conceived of. And, but I, I had this theory that pleasure would be medicinal and therapeutic. And if you had the most fun in life, that you'd you'd actually get the most fulfilment in life. But actually, that's when you'd be the healthiest. Mm, interesting. And so you wanted to explore that in the sense of doing some research. I wanted to explore yeah. that idea of you know if you have if you get if you enable people to have the most fun and receive the most pleasure, then that would also extend their ability to be healthy. Mm-hmm. So that was my idea. I wanted to study that, but to do an honest degree, I had to find a supervisor. So, you know, who did you go for that? So I, went, I you know, approached psychiatrists and I approached, you know, different, you know, clinical psychologist people, but no one, as I say, psych- positive psychology wasn't invented then. And they all said, you can't study pleasure, it's too frivolous. But, <laughs> but pain's, you know, really interesting. Um, oh. <laughs> and, and, you know, there was all these pain clinics then. And, and so I did a, a honours degree in two departments because pain wasn't sort of owned by any one area. So I did it in physiology and psychological medicine. So I was actually bridging um, ah, your mind and body. That's how you snuck it in, yeah. So mm-hmm. I did it between the two departments of physiology and psychological medicine at, Mon- uh, at Monash University. And during that year, I kept on coming across acupuncture and acupuncture analgesia and realising that 
acupuncture had an effect for pain relief that was just not understood by Western medicine. You know, mm. that it released endorphins and it was starting to be an understanding of that and it wasn't really understood in terms of the theory of Chinese medicine, which was in Chinese. You know, they talked about yin and yang and qi, which was not understood at all in, in Western medicine. And that really interested me and I thought if we could understand the Chinese medical system in Western medical terms, that would open up a whole new area of preventive medicine. And mm. that then spurred me on to um, wanted to do further research, but I felt that I needed a bit of clinical experience first. I went back and did my fourth year of my medical degree in the hospitals, mm -hmm. and then I took a further three years off to do a, a PhD in Chinese medicine. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm. And what was your PhD topic? Well, it was it was on informatics, so using information theory to bridge Western science with Chinese medicine. And I ended up going to, uh, I wanted to go to China to study acupuncture, but that, that, at that time China was still quite closed and the place to go to learn acupuncture for English speakers was Sri Lanka. So I went to, to Sri Lanka oh. and studied a year at an acupuncture clinic there. And um, yeah, immersed myself in sort of Chinese medicine and trying to understand the, the links with Western medicine and, and, and use the context of information theory and sort of going back to first principles and thermodynamics to, to find a, a relationship between Chinese concepts and Western concepts. And, and that, that then led me back to finish my medical degree. So I went back to Monash and finished my um, Western medical degree. And then I ended up doing a second PhD in electrical and computer systems engineering. With all that spare time. Yeah, that well, had, I, well, again, I was, I was really <laughs> curiosity led. And um, I was still trying to focus on wellness, you know, trying to understand wellness. And I realized technology would be a big part of any wellness future, mm. that, you know, both to understand what's going on in the body and then to apply yes. different um, you know, therapies. So I really wanted to understand the technology, you know, biomedical technology, but also when I did my first PhD, I was looking at inform information as a, a bridge between Eastern and Western concepts. So the idea of qi in Chinese medicine is very similar to the idea of information in Western science. And when you look at the body as an information system or as a communication network, you don't do that in medicine. And the people that look at communication networks are electrical engineers. And I happened to meet a very mm. inspired electrical engineer at a grant workshop at Monash, um, Irina Kosick, who had a whole theory about the resonant recognition model of protein interaction. And you know, she studies frequencies and spectrum of, of molecules, but at the macro level as well. And she'd previously done work in acupuncture and she was fascinated by my approach and said, invited me to come and do a PhD with her. So I spent quite a few years at, at Monash while I was working as a GP doing locum work, mm. um, doing yeah, a second PhD on electrical computer systems engineering and then getting involved in um, teaching medical students at Monash University a whole range of electives in my spare time then. Right, yes, so lots of spare time. Okay, so it's the 80s. Are we still in the 80s at this point no, no, in time? No, that's the early 90s. We're in the 90s now. So the late 80s I finished my medical degree. Yeah. Um, 91, I graduated from medicine and did my internship and started working as a locum. And then about 93, 92, I started my second PhD in electrical engineering. And at that time, I was, I was a full-time you know, student studying my PhD, but also I was working as a locum um, GP. 
and I got a, a job with medical informatics and medical informatics then was a brand new field out at Monash and I had a mentor, Branko Chesnik, who was a one of the early informaticians looking at information systems in the whole medical world and, and he employed me as a you know, casual staff member at Monash and at that time they were introducing electives to medical students and they asked me if I wanted to create some electives. So I'd done this training in acupuncture. So I created an elective on acupuncture, which was, I think I'm the first person to formally teach acupuncture to medical students. That was in I would say that you would have been, yeah. And then over the next sort of eight years, eight to ten years, I developed a whole range of electives for medical students at Monash, ranging from Aboriginal spirituality and humour and healing and team building and leadership and a week at a health retreat where we took them to a sort of a yoga retreat and um, introduction to complementary therapies for medical students, which was you know part-time teaching load. And then from those students, that some of them wanted to do their own honours degree, so I started supervising you know, my own honours students um, in these areas and built up a, a centre for complementary medicine at Monash University throughout the 90s. Amazing. So was it around the early 90s that this idea of integrative complementary medicine, you know, that building the bridge between uh, traditional modern medicine, if you like, and these complementary therapies, was that really when it was born? Pretty much. I remember, I think it was 93, 93 or 4, when I was working with Branko Chesnik at... Um, at you know, community medicine or the medical informatics at Monash and um, Ian Gawler announced he was going to do a mind, immunity and health conference mm-hmm. and it was the first series of conferences and, and you know, I went to, you know, he, he ended up having five of those conferences and it was about the same time, I think it was 92, 93, that AMA was born, the Australasian Integrative Medicine Association, oh, which okay. I was also there at the foundation of that. So, yeah, it was in the early 90s, you know, AIMA, the Integrated Medicine Association, formed. Ian Gawler started running his Mind, Immunity and Health conferences down at Lawn. And these were great conferences where the integrated medicine community really came together. And after five years, he, he stopped running those conferences and said, if anyone else wants to you know, take over the banner and start running them? And I put my hand up and I started running them through AIMA, the Integrated Medicine Association. And they're still going now. I think they had 20 second conference, 23rd conference this year. So over 20 years later, they're still going, yeah. Amazing. So your vision of healthcare utopia, what mm-hmm. does it look like? Well, it's getting bigger and bigger as, you know, it used to be just, you know, me being healthy and happy. Now, really health, my, my idea of a health utopia is it has to involve the whole planet because mm. we're all in this t- together and we're all connected. So my health is actually dependent, fully dependent on having a healthy environment and having everyone on in the world support my health. Oh, it absolutely is. I was at a conference, the BBC World Future Conference, mm-hmm. the World Changing Ideas on Tuesday, and Ron Garan, an ex-NASA astronaut, talked and shared his journey up into outer space and how it transformed his perception of of everything forever mm-hmm. uh, and really brought to the fore the idea that the environment and our beautiful planet was the thing that united us all. And he, he tells this gorgeous story about going up in space with the Russian astronaut team. So there was an American team and a Russian team and how odd it felt for two those two flags to be together and for all of them to be uniting together in outer space. Mm-hmm. But they landed in Kazakhstan. But he describes the landing, you know, they come down mm-hmm. in the parachute and then that cube and then they roll on the floor and then it stops. 
And he describes the landing as looking outside the little cubicle hole and seeing dirt, uh, a, a tree and a flower. Mm-hmm. Those were the first things he saw and he said, I'm home. And even though he was so far from home in the literal yeah. sense, in what we all define home to be, it was, he said it was the singular most hum- humanity unifying moment in his, in his psyche. And he actually left NASA to now go and teach that. Uh, ever since because he really feels we all need to to think much bigger picture and to put our planet front and centre of, of all the work that all of us do in any and I agree. area. I think we all need to have that moment where we all feel home on Earth. So my, my, and one, mm. of the, one of the biggest factors that I'm becoming more aware of is you know, I've got a bias towards water and you know, any health utopia requires everyone on Earth to have access to clean, flowing water. And we're, mm. we're incredibly far from that at the moment. I mean, there's a billion people on planet Earth right now who, who don't have access to sanitation or drinking water. And that's, you know, that's mm. I think that's an indictment of all of us in the, in the third world, in the first world and, and, and our governance structures yeah. where we can, you know, send probes to Mars and asteroids, yet, yeah. yet we, we don't <laughs> totally have, um, agree. you know, we, yeah. there's a billion people that don't have access to water. Sorry, there isn't enough left over, guys. And, yeah. and <laughs> some of the water technologies that are around now are um, incredibly innovative where they can harvest water from the air and harvest water from the soil and we can you know, purify water through many different, you know, very low-tech methods. And and mm. really, I think that as a as a global community, we if we just focused on that one issue of providing clean, flowing water to everybody, then that would change the world. And, and even in the first world, we think we've got clean, flowing water, but I mean, most of the water we're drinking in, I mean, Melbourne is talked about as having very good quality water, but the levels of chlorine in, in um, normal muni- municipal drinking water affects us. But also now we're, we're understanding that, you know, we've only got, we've got added chemicals with chlorine and fluoride and stuff in our water and flocculants and things but now our water is contaminated with pharmaceutical mm. drugs and it's contaminated with industrial chemicals mm. and you know organic chlorine pesticides and glyphosate and that are all now in our water supply and yeah. we really need to address that as an issue so health utopia is you know, clean flowing water for everybody and then you know seasonal local organic whole foods for everybody so, and these are a massive social and global issues that we that we need to address. But we need to address it as individuals at a grassroots level. Mm, absolutely, I don't think we can rely on governments or you know, the people in authority to to dictate this for us. You know, we need to actually choose it because essentially, I think the, the so-called leaders they're actually following what the public want. And mm. yeah, we need to actually change our own perception. Yeah, yeah. It's like I say with I say with junk food. You know, people won't That's make it. what we don't buy. And if you just stop buying it, you don't need to bitch about it anymore because it just won't exist. So keep yeah, just telling take it your out friends. of your world. You know, change, you know, you you know, know yeah, change yeah. Your world, take it yeah. out of your world. It was never part of our world to begin with. I mean, it's Correct. so foreign to what our world actually is that it just doesn't belong here. Yeah. Now, you mentioned a couple of things there with water, and I think given that is something that a lot of people struggle with because, of course, our governments tell us we need to uh, drink mm-hmm. fluoride in our water and, and those sorts of things, but it's it's something that I feel very strongly personally. You know, I can never tell anybody what to do, but it just makes no sense to me to put fluoride in the water. Can you share your thoughts? Uh, 
I don't know if that's a difficult question for you to answer in terms of political or what, you know, but I would love to hear what you think. Yeah. Well, it is political. I mean, I mean, I, I don't think it's right to dose an entire population with fluoride, which is a, a mm. neurodevelopmental toxin at high levels, you know, for their whole life yeah. without monitoring it. I mean, just in terms of medical principles, that's not a great idea. You know, everybody here, you know, we're dosing you all, whether you like it or not, we're not going to monitor you. And, you know, some people drink a lot, some people drink a little. Um, and, you know, fluoride may have benefits only at certain windows in time in development, but everyone's mm. getting it for their whole life. So I don't generally don't think that's a good idea. Uh, I really encourage people to, you know, get water filters or find um, a local water source. And, and there are beautiful spring water sources throughout Australia and not far from most capital cities where you can get water for free. I mean, I go up to Mount Donabiwang, about an hour and a half from Melbourne and, and collect water from a mountain spring there that's beautiful water. And, my, you know, my children and myself, you know, we love to drink water. And I've noticed while I used to love Melbourne, Melbourne tap water, you know, I, I can't no, tolerate can tap I. water now unless I'm yeah, literally dehydrated. Exactly. It literally dying. tastes like a swimming um, pool once you've been drinking filtered yeah. water for a while. That's it. Once, once you've had, you know, really high quality, pristine water, you mm. don't want to go backwards. So that's a, yeah, that's been a big issue. And the the other thing for me is connecting with the cycle of life, and we've become so disconnected from our food and where our that whole cycle of nurturing the earth and the earth you know, grows plants and then we pick the plants and and we, we we very often don't grow anything ourselves that we eat, so we're disconnected from that whole cycle. So re-establishing that in some form of our lives, I think, is really important. Whether it's just growing some herbs on your kitchen bench, or I mean, if, if you've got access to a, even just a small area, it can be a balcony or anything, it's possible to grow something that you mm. eat yourself. And I'm really, it's another hobby horse of mine, is to you know, get get people to, to be connected with their food yeah, source. absolutely. And I think, you know, I educate a lot of parents in online education forms. You know, one of the courses that I run is called Thrive and it's for kiddies and, and really just helping our kids feel empowered by real food instead of rejecting it, which is the Western default, yeah. seems. And, you know, that you cannot do anything better than take your child to a farmer's market. If you're an urban person, you don't have a balcony. We don't, you know, so we really had to look outside as to how we were going to bring nature inside. Yep. And, I mean, going to a farmer's market – choosing the broccoli together, getting little Johnny to go, well, if you did have to eat something green, what would it be? You know, your choice. And then congratulating mm-hmm. them as you all sit down together as a family and talking about the lovely farmer Joe that you met, you know, like just connecting and joining the dots makes it not so weird and foreign to kids. And then they grow up. Uh, and, and, and even better if they can, you take them to somewhere where they're growing the food and they can yeah. pick a tomato or, you know, cherry tomato and pop, pop it straight in their mouth. Yeah. Yeah. One of the one of the other areas of large areas of research I'm doing is on herbal teas. Mm. And you know, I've written this massive textbook on herbs and natural supplements, which is currently in its fourth edition. We're planning the fifth edition now. It's sixteen hundred pages. But in the first three editions, which grew each, you know, from four hundred to eight hundred to twelve hundred pages in the first three editions, <laughs> um, we have a chapter on Tulsi and Tulsi's um holy basil or perennial basil. And I really didn't know much about it up until about five, six years ago. And then when we were planning the fourth edition, I learned about it. And it's the most revered herb in Ayurveda. They call it the incomparable one. 
Mm-hmm. And pretty much every Hindu household in India has a Tulsi plant that they literally worship as a as a goddess. And it's how beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's they have it in a ceramic pot, and it's a daily practice where they'll go and and you know tend to it, tend to the plant. Mm. They also eat a leaf or two. Mm. And if you think about any plant, and, and it grows as a perennial, so it's like it's like a form of basil, and you can make it into a tea, or you can use it for pesto, or you can just eat the leaves straight. Although you know, it's like eating a basil leaf, uh, but even a bit more potent in terms of its um, clovey sort of rosemary type um, smell. Mm. But that, if you're going to grow one plant that you could eat from every day, it would be a Tulsi plant. Yeah. Because you, you can keep feeding it; it'll grow into a nice big bush. And um, you can take one or two leaves every day, and you, you, know, you won't mind it throughout the year. And um, I've got I've sort of created a ritual amongst my friends um, around Christmas time, where if you've got a, a Tulsi plant, it's got beautiful flowers, either pink or white flowers, depending on the variety. And you can cut the flowers and you know, put them on your kitchen table, and the, the, the scent of the flower is like rosemary or cloves, where it actually stimulates, you know, your thinking mm. and. It, it sort of makes you feel alive. It actually gets rid of mosquitoes and other things too. But um, after a, a week or so of having these beautiful flowers in a vase, they'll sprout roots, and then you can transplant them into a little into a little pot and have oh, and wow. have new Tulsi plants because you can grow them from cuttings. And, Gorgeous! And, so you can bring a couple of flowers to your mate's house, and yeah. then they have them in the vase, and then they. Transfer them yeah, to a or, pot. Or I love you it. Transfer into a pot yourself and give a give away a Tulsi plant, and I call it the gift mm. that keeps on giving. It's like a you know like a mm. scoby, a kombucha scoby, where you give it away. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, you so you give 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 someone a little pot and say, you know, you, you can tend to this this plant, or once it's you know, grown big enough, you can start eating the leaves and making tea out of it, or making pesto out of the leaves. And when it's grown really big and has lots of flowers, you can cut the flowers and give it away to your friends. So it's a, it's mm. a wonderful um reconnection with you know the living power of nature but it's also if you look at the medicinal properties of Tulsi I mean when I wrote this first chapter I thought it'd just be a quite a small chapter but it ends up being 10,000 words and 300 scientific (laughs) references that could have something to do with the fact that you're you though Mark it could (laughs) yeah I mean I got into the the topic but it's I mean as I say it's the in Ayurveda and you think about Indian medicine they have and Indian cooking has the biggest range of herbs and spices from any other know medicinal system because you know they've got all the rainforest and the desert and the mountain herbs and spices that they use but they call Tulsi the incomparable one you know mother nature's gift to humanity nothing like it and it's it's the ultimate adaptogen so it helps you adapt to physical stress psychological stress and pretty much everything bad you could do to a rat they've done but if you give the rat Tulsi beforehand it'll be protected so whether it's you know making them swim till they drown or radiation or chemicals or Stress, psychology, um, noise, stress. You know, Tulsi prevents or protects the, the animals from stress. That's incredible. And um, if you think about in sort of Western culture, the beverages we drink, we're addicted to sugar, alcohol, and caffeine, and they're the main. Mm. And Tulsi has the benefits of sugar, alcohol, and caffeine without the drawback. So it it relaxes you, but doesn't depress you like alcohol. It stabilizes mm. blood sugar, so it gives you energy, but it doesn't sort of give you the high and low that Insulin sugar issues. does. Yeah, and it stimulates you, but doesn't give you the jitters like caffeine does. So you know, even if you've replaced one or two, you know, caffeine, sugar, alcohol drinks with a cup of Tulsi tea, I mean, it ends up changing. Mm changing the whole way you approach your life. 
So that's a, it's sort of another area of, and we're doing research with Tulsi and other sort of blended teas with elite athletes and people with metabolic syndrome and obesity and other just normal healthy people looking at cognitive function and metabolic function. Interesting. Very interesting. I think everyone's sort of madly scribbling down Tulsi and probably already Googling. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and it, it's strange because some nurseries do sell Tulsi plants, but probably the best way is just to find someone with a plant and take a cutting. Mm. So it's one of those things you can share. So it's not like, um, I mean, you can't take a cutting of a, I don't know, of a coffee bush. Or, um, no, you um, can't. But, you know, so it's caffeine, alcohol and, and sugar drinks are big corporate machines delivering that to the world where yes. Tulsi is sort of this grassroots thing people can share amongst themselves. I really well, love you, that. If you do have a Tulsi plant, you've got to protect it from the frost. Okay. So it grows much better. I mean, I've, I've, I remember I gave a Tulsi plant away a couple of years ago to a friend in Byron Bay and it's now two and a half metres high. It's got hundreds and hundreds of flowers all oh, over it. Where golly. Where in they don't grow as, quite as big. Oh, well, you've um, solved the problem. I, I stay with, um, we stay with wonderful friends in Bangalore first week of January every year. So oh, yeah. I know exactly what I'm going to be bringing them. That is, that's beautiful. Very mm. nice. And I think, in, um, I remember getting cuttings, the Mullumbimby Community Market. Oh, that's a gorgeous market. But, it, but they've got a community garden there. And the community garden's got a few Tulsi plants you can just go and take some cuttings from and, and sprout. And it grows like you know, wild up there. It's, it's, yeah, it'd be yeah, a good climate for it. to give away. Mm. Mm. Lovely. So I, I've got a question for you. We're talking about, um, sure. obviously, health utopia here. It's something that I find really interesting at the moment from a sociological perspective is we're getting sicker and sicker as a society, right? Yet mm-hmm. mirrored by that increase is the fact that we're getting more and more aware of what actually a, a great lifestyle can do for our overall health. Like, why do you think people find it so hard to make changes that we actually know we should be making? Uh, I mean, that's, a, that's uh, one of the key questions. And a, a, a big factor is ignorance because a lot of people just don't know and then convenience. Or shut it out, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, you might know the right thing, but if it's if you've got you know, big corporate machines that are, are feeding us, you know, very convenient things that also give you this instant gratification. Mm. It's like click clickbait on the internet. Yeah. You know, you know, you're trying to stimulate dopamine and give people a quick rush, even though, you know, it's like the, the equivalent of junk food for information. Yeah. So I think I think it is a, a big issue that we've got perverse incentives for corporations, but also for governments to mm. support the health of the population. Yeah. I mean, just like with fossil fuels, I mean, we don't tax carbon, so there's no incentive Which for them to crazy. stop polluting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's no tax on the bad things that are for us. Now, you know, I mean, there is alcohol and tobacco, but you know, a, a, sugar, a sugar tax, which some co- countries now are experimenting with sugar tax, and it works. Mm. You know, you disincentivize things that are bad, and so I don't think it's. It's really a problem. I mean, we talk about it's individual choice and we do have a huge power to make individual choices in our own life and our own health. But I think that needs to be supported by policy and regulation. Mm. You can't leave it all up to an individual. Yeah, absolutely. And Brene Brown, who's obviously a rather famous researcher herself, has said that she's found in her research the single most difficult thing for a human being to do is to go against the grain of their immediate friends and family. Yeah. So we have to change the whole culture. Yeah, And, and we've exactly. got a culture now where, you know, I can go out and very easily buy junk food, 
Mm. But if I want to find healthy food, I've got to search it out and travel yeah. you know, quite far and, and you know, buy a little bit here and a bit there. There's not one easy available source for super healthy food or organic food. But junk food's everywhere. Mm, and it we, is. Have, we have to reverse that. We do. I visited a community that was looking to try and get healthier last year, and it's the third lowest socioeconomic suburb in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just kind of, I was driven around. And so we were in a car, we were looking around, and she took me around all the streets, and I saw these rows and rows of um, very easy access junk food kind of drive through situations. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, where's the nearest supermarket? Because, you know, quite frankly, even a supermarket would have been an upgrade yeah, from yeah. what was on offer in their local streets. And, uh, and she goes, oh, you, you have to go across the highway. And I was like, so for most of these families who obviously don't have cars, mm. it's not entirely easy for you to cross a highway. So they have to either try and get public transport, which if you've got a very tiny amount of money a week, you don't want to be shelling out $2.80 on the bus. to You know, all of this stuff adds up. And I was just horrified by how hard it was for these families who were already finding things so tough to see the $20 family meal as the um, the best and easiest options while they tried to hold down three jobs to get their kids their sports gear and textbooks and things that they needed for school. It was just, it, it was it, a real... We've made it very, very difficult for mm. families such as that, although with the right information and the right support, it's actually cheaper to eat well, you know, to buy ingredients yes. and cook, but people have lost the art of cooking. Exactly. And the art of growing, Mm -hmm. because one of the things that really, really struck me, and the good news is they've done something about since, is that they've got land. You know, me coming from my Mm -hmm. urban 2.5 bedroom apartment situation and going out to the suburbs, they all had backyards. Mm -hmm. There could be chooks in there. There could be veggie patches, basically free food. And yet no one's connecting the dots for them well enough to empower them to actually start to take those steps and realise that. And I think the whole world's in this process of re-empowering people to take back. Mm. I mean, we've given our power away to the medical fraternities and to the big energy companies and to, you know, the big corporations to produce our food. Yet, you know, now there's a whole trend, you know, for solar. So people can, you know, put on some solar panels and... You know, they'll be able to buy a Tesla wall battery, you know, and power their house without the energy companies. And, you know, people can find out, wow, there's all these forms of medicine that you don't need to have, you know, high-level prescription drugs and pay a fortune for medicines. We can grow our own medicine. We can use the natural therapies. We can meditate. We can change our lifestyle. And people can produce their own foods. And, and the local food production, it, I mean, it's a global movement, and that, that solves so many issues, environmental issues, food security mm. issues, health issues. So really, you know, it's, it's making friends with that, these bacteria again and nourishing the soil. Because if you look at healthy food production, yeah. it's all about the microbes in the soil. You want healthy worms. Healthy worms make healthy people. Yeah, healthy worms mm. are everything. But healthy worms kind of die pretty quickly in conventional agriculture, don't well, they? That's it. I mean, conventional agriculture uses pesticides to kill the microbial life in the soil and then just allow one mm. form of life, which is you know, often GMO'd and then genetically modified to, to survive the, the pesticides that have been applied to, to grow in one monoculture. If you look at you know the most productive ecosystems, they're not one monoculture. They're, you know forests of food or forests of different you know, plants together and, and you know, while that, it's much harder for one person and a harvester 
to manage, you know, multiple plants in one crop. As individuals, we can do that and it's fun and easy. Mm, absolutely. And uh, one of my shows a few shows back was with a wonderful regenerative farmer in the US and he was talking about how they actually sequester more carbon than they mm-hmm. produce and they rear animals. Was, um, Joel Salatin, so, the polyface farm. Yeah, yes, so, exactly. So this is mm-hmm. one of his kind of protégés, lovely Paul Grieve, yeah. So it's it's very interesting times while we – do you believe like we can we can really try and, and – you know, like obviously grassroots is, is lovely, but how do we get bigger organisations to pay attention to just how important this is? It seems like progress at the expense of health has been the model for the last 100 years. Um, how do we say progress and health and how could that look? Well, well I think we have to, to show there's actually a better way that's better, cheaper, yeah. safer. And, I mean, you're seeing that with energy. So you've got, you know, what Elon Musk is doing with, you know, Tesla, where you've got electric cars that are now the safest cars that have ever been built that mm. are fully electrical powered and he's providing, I don't know, free charging for them. So, you know, you've got a, a faster, safer, better car that's environmentally sustainable and then, then it's a no-brainer. That's what you want to choose. So we, I think we've been living in this sort of fossil fuel bubble mm. for the last you know, 150 years, 200 years, where... You know, we've been burning lots of fossil fuels, you know, living off plastics and outsourcing the necessities of life to large corporations because they're the people who can afford a nuclear power plant or a oil rig or you know, a plastics factory. And I think mm-hmm. we need to then rethink how we, how we structure our communities. And, and now, I mean, I've just come back from Europe at the Global Wellness Summit and wellness communities are the latest thing for property developers where they're you know, taking down the fences and they're putting in edible landscapes and you know, nature walks and, and oh, gardens. beautiful. And I, I used to be, I know in Melbourne, it used to be public policy where they, it was illegal to plant food-producing trees in public spaces. Oh, God. You know, because <laughs> cause they, didn't think, they thought, who's going to tend to them and who's going to pick the fruit or whatever? But now they're, they're realising, well, if they start you know, having productive trees in public spaces, it enhances the value of the of the, the whole area. Sure does. And people want to live there. That's right. And it's a place for people to bond. You know, we talk about health as such a 2D thing, right? Diet and exercise. But yep. it is so much more. And I was really heartened interviewing Malcolm Rands from the founder of EcoStore the other day. And his Fairground Foundation is kind of in full effect now. And he's creating these property developments called bump spaces where they're specifically created to get people to bump into each other more who live around mm-hmm. each other so that we actually connecting so it's not just the earth we need to connect with but it's obviously with each other as well are there any other like you know you've studied a lot and mm-hmm. and as i just said there's obviously diet and exercise and that seems to be all that any of the official comms from the top down um contains mm-hmm. but of what you've studied what are some of the other key factors to our health well, I've sort of narrowed it down to five. Yeah, nice. And okay. I, and I, I call it the wellness pyramid. So if you write the following words you know, in, a, in different lines and centre them, they form a, a triangle and it's be, mm-hmm. relax, exercise, eat good food, share your feelings. Oh, love it. And those, those five elements, so you know, being means you know, spending time to just be and, and we, we all do that when we sleep. But 
whether it's you know having some sort of meditation practice or having some time where we're just being ourselves, mm. you know, not having to do anything. So that's at the very top. And then you've got relaxing, so it's actively relaxing, you know, doing doing our hobbies, our stress management programs, or or anything that we do to just take time out and enjoy our lives. Then exercise, obviously, to move our bodies, eating good food, which you know, that's a natural thing. But then sharing your feelings, and that's the foundation of of what I call the wellness pyramid. So if we think about the the greatest joys in life, it's what we do with other people. Mm. It's also often the greatest challenges as well, mm. our relationships. But you know, sharing your feelings, you know, sharing your life with other people is the foundation for a healthy life, in, in my opinion. Beautiful. And so if you were like baking up a recipe for perfect health, that's it? That's your pyramid? That's it. Mm. Be, relax, exercise, eat good food and share your feelings. And, and I came across that in the early 90s when I had this sort of, I just finished my medical degree and I went to a, a place called Ontos, which is a health retreat in Far East Gippsland. Where I, where I subsequently took medical students for a week. But I met up with Nishala Davy, who was Dean Ornish's yoga teacher. And Dean Ornish is a, you know, a researcher in the United States who had done a, a formal research pro- project that showed that lifestyle change could reverse coronary heart disease. Mm. And he, he published that in the mid-1990s. But, but I read about it a bit before that. And you know, I was really struck by something that he said, because he said that you know, it's in our current model of medicine is considered normal in a conservative treatment for heart disease to you know, open up someone's chest, you know, strip a vein from their leg, put that vein from their leg across a blocked artery in their chest mm. and repeat that every 10 years you know, for wow. coronary artery bypass surgery. That's mm. considered normal. It was considered radical to relax, exercise, eat good food, <laughs> feelings. And that struck me because I just, I, I just finished medicine. I'd learned to, to you know, be part of bypass operations and there wasn't an industry that I knew of that was about relaxing, exercising, you know, just being, eat, eating good food and sharing feelings and um, it was in the mid-90s I came across the spa industry. Mm. I actually was, I've had some great mentors in my, my time and um, I met with Horst Reschelbacher who was the founder of Aveda Corporation and he, mm-hmm. and he was basically a hairdresser who had gone to India and discovered organics and, and created a, an organic um, based you know, hair care company. And um, he, he invited me to come and speak at one of his conferences in Los Angeles. And I went to the Aveda Spa in Wisconsin and, and was just blown away by a whole industry that was just around people really just being healthy, relaxing, being in nature. And you know, it was really devoted to wellness, not illness at all. And um, that, that was a revelation to me that there was a wellness industry that came out of spas and hospitality and hotels that was unrelated, was actually separate from the medical world, which is certainly focused on disease, not not wellness. Absolutely. But then if you look at some of the countries who've done wellness and disease right, you know what I mean, um, you know, Switzerland and Germany have mm-hmm. always combined the two, right? They've always, I mean, if you look back in history, you don't get diagnosed with um, a chronic illness or cancer mm-hmm. without being prescribed spa treatments. Well, I mean, they've you had know, for, many, you know, for many years, you know, mm. you go for the cure, you go, you go to a spa resort for a couple of weeks or, or longer a year as part of your you know, government health program. And, mm, you know, yeah. as I say, I've just done this tour of hot spring facilities in Europe and it goes back to Roman times mm. where, the, you know, the Romans had this incredible bathing culture. 
And a lot of the, the towns throughout Europe were based on, you know, hot springs or, you know, having, having public baths and public facilities. Yeah. And it just makes sense. It brings you really back to your my German naturopath always says, you know, get under a, a hot, cold, hot, cold shower. Just bring yourself back to body, she calls it, you know, because water just on your skin, it just brings you back to not thinking about anything else outside and, and back in inwards instead of outwards. Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of that. And, and in fact, one of the, I had many, many different bathing experiences while I was in Europe and, you know, radon bars and minus 160 cryotherapy, you know, Celsius cryotherapy bars. But one of the most revealing or um, interesting and exhilarating for me was a place in Austria called the Aquadome where they had a... It was like a shower cubicle, but it was six metres high. It was done like a big chimney. And you could have just a normal rainwater shower there, but there was one button you could press and you'd have 300 litres of ice water that would dump, dump <gasps> on your head from six mm. metres up. And it lasted about 10 or 15 seconds. And it was yeah. you know, intense and uncomfortable because this is you know, four-degree ice water coming from mm. a height. But you know, when you survived that, and you literally it took the air out of you and made you scream um, with the cold. Yeah. But for hours afterwards, your whole body would just be exhilarated. You know, you'd be tingling, yeah. and it was almost like you'd recovered from a near-death experience because your body goes into this death shock, thinking that you know, if it lasts longer than this, you're going to die because it was it was so intense. But then, you know, after ten seconds of that, it was just exhilarating. And yeah, I'm really appreciate that we don't often have that in our lives. That we you know, we've become so comfortable that we don't mm. stress our bodies, and you know, your bodies need occasional stress. You need to have the you know the pendulum swing from severe activity and then to go to severe inactivity you want to be able to do Mm. both in your life and you know you don't want to have life-threatening stress you know with a tiger chasing you or you know some you know you don't need to go in a car accident and really put your life at risk but there are these activities such as you know just a cold water immersion where you can Mm. release those hormones and and have a physiological effect um, similar to that but it's in a very safe environment And, and i think that's a i mean you can just do that with a hot and cold shower at home yeah, and do you think that that physiological response then gives your psychology courage? Like, do you think that actually subliminally might build a sense of I can handle this in the conscious world? Absolutely. I think it happens at, at, at all all levels. Mm, interesting. And you think, I mean, and, and I mean, I'm challenged by that myself because I'm I'm a hot water guy. I love hot springs and hot bathing, hot showers, and I mean, it takes me a. a uh, you know, I've done it a few times. I'm, I'm not into a regular practice yet, which I probably want to get to. But you know, just to turn on that cold shower in the morning, just have a total blast of cold water. Mm. I mean, it's just a it's a psychological thing. But we're in this comfort zone, and and to take ourselves out of the comfort zone, you need some sort of push. But then by doing it in a controlled way, that it's very safe. Mm. It does extend our abilities in other ways. Right. Fantastic. Yeah, I really, okay, I like that. So I don't know whether you're going to, what challenge you're going to set for us, but I would love for you to do one because I do this sometimes on the show. So I'm going to give you the parameters. So you can set one, Uh (laughs) it's one kind of, just one. I know this is hard for you, right? So live Uh happier, better, healthier challenge, just one. One thing that you would love for people to do more of or less of in the next seven days and observe like, you know, how they feel. Okay, in seven days. I was going about to say, you know, find a plant that you can grow, you know, a Tulsi plant or... Well, that could be your challenge. Could be... Also, eat eat from... Eat eat something you grow yourself every day, even if it's just a condiment. Okay. Try to have have something that you eat every day that you've grown yourself. Right. So everyone's headed to their their local... um, 
either community garden or maybe even if it's Bunnings to pick up a herb pot or whatever yep. you can get your hands on and you're going to yep. be popping a couple of leaves on your salads throughout the week. I love it. Simple. Everyone can do that. Just something. Just change, change your relationship to food by doing that. Love it. Thank you so much, Mark. I, I want to ask you a personal question to finish sure. because it's just so fascinating to me how much you have fit into your life in terms of curiosity and learning so far. Is there something like in 30 years when you're looking back that you want to look back fondly on as having achieved that you haven't actually accomplished yet? Yeah, well, one of the things, I want to get chlorine out of that bathing industry. Nice. So hopefully within five to ten years, you know, I mean, because once you've bathed in water with, you know, that's pristine and clear without chlorine, you don't want to go back. No, and, you don't. You know, that's one of the projects I'm working on now is, is using sort of advanced technology and understanding of microbial life to make friends with bacteria and stop people bathing in disinfectants. So you can go into it. You know, when you, you know when you go into an aquatic centre and you get hit by that wall of chlorine when you open the doors? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I want to remove that from the world. Ah, oh, amazing goal. Hmm. Well, if I can help in advocacy, please let me know. Well, just on that, we're, one of my students, oh, and we've got a whole lot of research, but we're just about to release a, a global sauna survey. And uh-huh. within the next week, um, saunasurvey.org will be a website that people can go and contribute their own data to sauna science. Interesting. Well, we'll pop it in the show notes. Yeah, well, anyone who's a regular sauna user can go, onli- mm. go online and give us their data. And, and this is regular saunas, infrared saunas, the whole shebang? Any sauna. Okay. So, so the survey will you know, ask them what type of saunas and why they do it and what benefits and what adverse effects and you know, how they do it, all of it, those sort of things. We're interested in collating that information and contributing to sauna science. Done. Well, I, we, can definitely, we can definitely get a few thousand people to, to answer that for sure. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we didn't touch on a couple of things today um, because it would have just opened a huge can of worms, so I may just have to bring you back. I'll be very happy to. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of a lot of content that we haven't touched on, but um, really lovely to chat. And yeah, look forward to another time. Thank you so much for joining me for today's show. Check out the show notes at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. And if you wanted to maybe share a quote and something that really jumped out for you, you can find us on Instagram at lowtoxlife or simply hashtag lowtoxlife across social media. I absolutely love bringing you the show. Thank you for any of the star ratings or one-line reviews that you guys have left. It helps me know what you've been loving and what you'd love to see more of. I'll see you next week. Jack Rabbit FM. For your ears. Who is that? Hi, Puck.